0: The Dickheads are presented in color.
1: Hey, Dickheads, like a pink laser beam of truth, beaming straight from all over the planet to your brain hole. It is the Dickheads podcast, and we are back with a panel of experts that's so good Seth almost cried because I invited him, because he felt like an imposter, but that's not true because Seth is one of the best. Um, I invited you here for a reason, Seth. Anyways, <laughs> we're going to go around and and uh, introduce ourselves. I'm David Agronoff, co-host of the Dickheads podcast. i also author of Goddamn Killing Machines, which is basically like if Philip K. Dick wrote The Dirty Dozen. That's what I was going for anyways. <laughs> And uh, on the bottom of your screen is Seth Heasley. Introduce yourself, Seth.
0: Hey there. I am Seth Heasley. I am co host of Take Me to Your Reader, which is a podcast about adapted science fiction. So we cover movies that were adapted from books or short stories. And then I'm also the host of the Hugo's There podcast, which Dave has been kind enough to guest on and that one i'm just reading through the hugo winners and for every episode i have a guest on and they choose which book we're going to talk about that's one of the winners
1: yeah that was awesome we talked about clifford smacks way station that was super yes. fun that was good yeah and right above him is alec neville lee who's been on the dickheads podcast before and alec tell him who you are
2: uh hi there uh so um I'm Alec Neville-Ali, and I'm the author of the nonfiction book, Astounding, uh, John W. Campbell, Isaac Asimov, Robert A. Heinlein, L. Ron Hubbard, and the Golden Age of Science Fiction, which was a Hugo uh, finalist uh, last year. Um, I'm also a science fiction writer. Uh, I recently released my first ever collection um, As an audio original, Uh, you can get it on um, audible.com, amazon.com, a variety of other places, syndromes, science fiction stories, all of which originally appeared in Analog, which came out last month, uh, much to my surprise. Um, And uh, I'm currently working on a nonfiction biography of the architectural designer Buckminster Fuller, which uh, is a big project that I'm somehow still working on uh, that is uh, ideally going to come out next year.
1: Awesome. To your left is returning for the third time to the Dickheads podcast, uh, Lisa Yazik. Tell them who you are, Lisa. Hey,
3: everyone. I'm Lisa Yazik. I'm a professor of science fiction studies in the School of Literature, Media, and Communication at Georgia Tech. And I run the Sci-Fi Lab there, where we also actually have a podcast. So... We should talk about that sometime. Um, I'm a nonfiction writer. I'm primarily a scholar of science fiction history, and I'm best known for my work recovering and discovering women's science fiction. So, for instance, Galactic Suburbia, recovering women's science fiction. And then also I edit anthologies. This is something I've gotten to do more often recently, which I really enjoy, such as Sisters of Tomorrow, the first women of science fiction, which won the Popular Culture Association Award for the best feminist anthology of the year. And most recently, The Future is Female, which was a Locus Award finalist, and this is an anthology of science fiction by women from the 1920s to the 1970s. Right now, I'm actually flipped over, and I'm doing my uh, work in Afrofuturism, so I've got two books on Afrofuturism coming out this year, and I'm working on a handbook to gender in science fiction, and writing a new introduction to a new edition of The Time Machine.
1: Which really excites me, because I just read Island of Dr. Moreau for the first time, and it made me think that I needed to go back and reread all the H.G. Wells that I hadn't read. So when that edition comes out, it'll be top of my list. And right. Right above, Lisa, is Gary Wolf. Tell them who you are, Gary.
4: Well, I'm a reviewer for Locust Magazine and the Chicago Tribune. I'm a retired professor. I've been editing um, a series of um, anthologies for the Library of America. As a matter of fact, I'm glad you mentioned WayStation since uh, it's one of the novels in my American science fiction, eight classic novels of the 1960s that just came out last fall. And this is a follow-up to nine classic novels of the 50s. It's not because they wrote fewer novels in the 60s. It was just time, uh, space constraints. I also have been um, editing a series of monographs about science fiction writers, uh, one of which uh, Joanna Russ by Gwyneth Jones is up for a Hugo Award this year, yay for Gwyneth. And I'm the co host with Jonathan Strahan of the Coot Street podcast.
1: Awesome. So, in other words, we got a really awesome panel here, and I'm really excited to talk to everyone. Mostly, um, since we do a very Phil K. Dick themed podcast, we will talk about the man himself, Phil K. Dick, a little bit later because we do have some questions from listeners out there who posted questions specifically about him. And some other things, but we're also going to talk about modern sci-fi a little bit too. But I would imagine since all of us are really into the history and the old school, we're going to talk a lot about that. And starting with that, I would want to go around one time before we just get into general discussion and say, who is your top three science fiction writers that you go to to read? Starting with, Seth, do you want to start or, or... are you cool with starting, or do you, uh, want, to you want to come back?
0: I would not mind a little time to think about that.
1: Okay, <laughs> well, since I knew the question, I can start. There we go. A little bit, and let. Um, well, obviously, I'm a big Philip K. Dick guy. I do the podcast, but and everyone knows uh, that listens to this podcast knows how much I enjoy Philip K. Dick. So I wanted to talk about a couple other writers that are really important to me, and that's John Bruner, um, specifically. His three masterpieces, The Sheep Look Up, Shockwave Rider, and Stand on Zanzibar, which I consider to be the best 20th century science fiction novel pretty much ever, is uh, Stand on Zanzibar. Uh, last year, I read Canticle for Leibowitz for the first time, and it came really close. Came <laughs> <It> really <laughs> close. But I consider Stand on Zanzibar to be one of the most essential science fiction books of the 20th century and extremely underrated. So that's one that, you know, in prompting this conversation, I wanted to think about. The other two authors that I I consider to be top shelf are Ursula K. Le Guin, of course, uh, The Dispossessed being one of my all-time favorite uh, novels of anarchist science fiction. Uh, But then again, if you're talking about anarchist science fiction, that's like Anarchist 101, and her advanced class is her novel Always Coming Home, which I think Mm -hmm. everyone should read too. And I would say one uh, author that I'm really trying to champion lately, uh, while he's still with us, is Norman Spinrad. I love Norman Spinrad. And uh, I just read um, Deus Ex um, for the first time. And it was a really incredible read to uh, read at this time. It's a cli-fi novel, but reading it in this, during the coronavirus was really, really interesting. So the three authors that I would really like everyone to check out are John Brunner, Ursula Le Guin, and Norman Spinrad. Alec, would you like to go next with your three tops? Uh
2: Number one, I'll run Hubbard. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, I have read all of Hubbard's science fiction, uh, and, and some it's okay. I, I would not put him in my top three. Um, I will say that when I was researching Astounding, uh, which is basically a history of Golden Age science fiction, I read a lot of, uh, you know, the classic stories from, you know, the 30s and 40s, a lot of which I hadn't read before, and I, I mean, I know it's kind of, it's not the most interesting answer in the world, but Heinlein, to me, really was head and shoulders above everyone else working at that time. And if you read a big chunk of stories from the pulps from that period, um, it's really obvious. You know, he, he was kind of operating on a, on a higher level than anybody else, and I, I think Heinlein, to me, is sort of my quintessential writer. Um, two people who I uh, haven't read as much of, but who I always kind of push. Uh, one is Eric Frank Russell, uh, who is a British science fiction writer who I'm actually, like, you know, not as familiar with as I would like to be, but um, when I was reading my, uh, researching my book, uh, I read a novel that he had written called Sinister Barrier. Uh, which first appeared in Unknown Magazine, which was the other big pulp that uh, John Campbell edited during that time. And I was so blown away. It was the most fun, impressive novel I read, uh, I think, in that entire process. It's sort of like a big, um, it's sort of like, if you can imagine like the X-Files set in 1939, it's like cramming an entire season of the X-Files into 200 pages. And it's it's stunning. Um, so Eric Frank Russell, Sinister Barrier is a book that I recommend to everyone. Sold. And, um, I'm going to read it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, I don't even think it's in print, you know, which is shocking to me. Um, so if you can track it down, you know, please do. Um, and the other person I, I think about a lot these days is uh, A.E. Van Vogt, uh, who, again, i barely even heard of until I began doing research on on this period. And Van Vogt is so strange. He is so sort of, you know, outside any other writer of any period, um, but I would say that apart from Heinlein, he is the most interesting writer that I encountered, uh, you know, um, from the golden age, his work, uh, to me expresses a lot about how I think the world actually works, uh, and how the world, it seems to me, uh, you know, as opposed to more rational writers, um, from, from that period. And, um, you know, you can draw a direct line from Van Vogt, uh, to Philip K. Dick, uh, and Dick talks about Van Vogt. He talks about that influence, you know, at length. It's a very interesting thread in science fiction. So if you're a uh, like a Philip K Dick fan, um I would dec- definitely recommend uh seeking out Van Vogt, especially um the novel uh, World of Null-A, which uh still blows me away even now.
1: Yeah, I just um covered that with the SF Audio podcast, so Oh, you did? I- just read world of null a during the quarantine for the uh, it's wild oh
2: you read it during the quarantine wow well i mean no, there's no better book to read right now it, it really sums up uh a lot about how i'm feeling about things these days
1: <laughs> it's a really interesting book we come back to van Vogt. lisa who you got
3: okay so well first of all i hope this isn't super basic but i'm going to start with william gibson like we're talking about favorites like that's the you know science fiction that made sense of my life growing up in Detroit. That like kept me in touch with my friends when we all went to college and graduate school, and we even named our kid after the after the protagonist of Neuromancer. So, um, which to this day now he's turned out to be this really amoral kid who's very good with computers, and he's like, well, this is your fault. So, careful what you do. Um, nah. And then my second person I'd say is Joanna Russ, right? I mean, I know you've already said Le Guin and a lot of people really think of her when they think of the beginning of feminist science fiction, you know, but, but really Joanna Russ to me really brought it to, to, to the, to the world, both in terms of her fiction and her criticism. And she's funny and she's mean and she's smart and she's right on target. I feel like a lot and a lot of what she has to say is still relevant today, which I think she would find really depressing in some ways. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I've been teaching um, The Adventures of Alex lately, and I got to say the students love the idea of this righteous barbarian time-traveling like thief. Like they, 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 they find her appealing. So there are good parts, too, of her that still resonate. And then um, my third person, you know, I'm on the John W. Campbell Memorial, uh, or not the, yeah, the award for best uh, novel of the year, so I get to read a lot of new stuff. And for the last few years, my favorite author has been Tade Thompson, the Nigerian, a uh, British Nigerian author. Is it Tade or Ta- does anyone Tade. know how to pronounce it? Tade. It is Tade. I've always gone back and forth and I've never asked him and I thought I should. All right, Tade yeah, Thompson. He's on my
1: list. I definitely He read
3: him. is, oh my gosh, just mind-blowingly smart and fun. And the way that he writes both within the genre and homaging the genre and then turning it absolutely inside out and showing its horrible slimy guts and then taking it somewhere new it's pretty mind blowing and it's funny. It's a funny guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
4: Gary, you're next. Well, Lisa already took Joanna Russ away from me because, but if I think about people, I go back and reread. I mean, there, there are a lot of, if you, there are two questions. One is if you want, who do I want to see the next novel by always? And among current writers, there are a couple that come to mind. One is, uh, um, one is Kim Stanley Robinson, who was probably the best environmental novelist, period. Um, and another who I enjoy enormously, because he's a science fiction scholar and his scholarship is always embedded in his fiction, is Lavi Tiddar, uh the um, Israeli-born, now, now British citizen. Going back to classics, though, um, the other— and I'm just thinking people that I go back and reread and that I've been rereading uh, for no other reason than I always like to reread them. Close to the top of that list is Theodore Sturgeon who I think is, apart from genre, one of the best short story writers that, uh, that uh, the United States is, has ever produced. And I also, you know, despite my better instincts, and I've read everything more than once, I keep rereading Cordwainer Smith, Paul Lineberger, because nobody, nobody quite imagined the far future treated as the distant past. I mean, it's something that he sort of invented. Actually, Jack Vance probably invented it. But there was a kind of legendary tone to his work that you see echoed in in generations of writers after that, and it's amazing how many uh, writers you talk to who had that same impact, uh, the same feeling when they first read uh, Cordwainer yeah. Smith. Yeah, and my his first, mainstream novels are very weird too.
1: Yeah, my first Cordwainer Smith is on the in on my TBR, very close to the top right now. So uh, he was recommended to us by uh, Brian Evanson, the author Brian Evanson. Yeah. Um, heavily recommended him to us. Seth, who you got?
0: I'm kind of tempted to just say, you know, what everybody else said, but uh, I'm not going to do that. Um, You know, the fact is the reason that I'm doing the Hugo's there podcast is that I felt from the beginning that I'm not a very well-read science fiction fan. And so that's why I undertook the project. And one of the things that's freaking me out right now is when I started trying to become a more well-read science fiction fan, I checked out from the library, a teaching company, series called how great science fiction works oh with gary <laughs> so um that's freaking me out a little bit here um but uh you know i am wearing my, my 451 t-shirt here um i'm a big fan, fan of ray bradbury um really enjoyed kind of everything that i've read from him also a big fan of philip k dick of course um him mostly i've read his short fiction i've read several of the anthologies of his fiction Um, not so much in the novels so that's why I've been enjoying uh, Dave listening to your podcast covering those things Um, I'm also a big fan of Asimov I go back and reread iRobot every couple of years just because I just find it fascinating Um, and then uh, you know yeah Robert Heinlein's another person who everything I've read of his I've really enjoyed Um, and that one also is a lot of short science fiction and I'm starting to fill back in with the novels.
1: Yeah, I accidentally—I didn't think about it before I opened it, but I started rereading *Naked Sun* during this whole thing. And since that whole book is about social right. distancing,
2: exactly. That oh, wow, book, that's right. I, I thought about yeah, that. Yeah,
1: it was. Uh, that was another weird experience for this yeah. one. Uh, I can't bring myself to read *The Sheep Look Up* in this situation. I thought about it, but mm. I was like, no, can't do that. Um, <laughs> so, uh, let's get into some general stuff. Um, anybody jump in as as you want to, but. I would like to talk about basically a a few people have asked us to define what we consider science fiction Mm. and um, (laughs) which is a big and hard thing to say, but um, I don't think we have to get into exactly how we define science fiction because I think that we could go all day on that. Mm. However, um, who do you think is best representing science fiction in the 21st century, you know, where do you find the best 21st century science fiction, starting with Gary?
4: Um, I'll go back to um, uh, Ken Stanley Robinson. Uh, Partly, it's very political science fiction uh, in many ways. His uh, New York 2140 is a a kind of comic apocalyptic thing that, uh, that, uh, you don't expect. So he thinks through issues very, very well. And and it's it's rigorous. I mean, if, if you look beneath the political and ideological surface, it's hard as that. I mean, his Martian trilogy worked out every detail that he could work out, his, his science in the capital trilogy, which is really depressing right now, because it's about, you know, a presidency that completely ignores science. And it's, I mean, it's, it's difficult to make an exciting novel out of National Science Foundation policy, but that's what that trilogy basically is right um, so yeah I think I think that he's dealing with the kinds of issues that uh, probably Heinlein would be dealing with if he were still around today.
1: right I personally am a huge fan of both uh 2312 and Aurora I think are absolute mm-hmm. masterpieces uh, Aurora is my favorite Ken Stanley Robinson novel it just
4: in really- my argument about Aurora is one of the things that Robinson writes about? I, I'm, I'm attracted to writers who write about science fiction in their fiction. Aurora is a flat-out argument against the Generation Starship Tale. And it's basically a novel that says this whole major theme of science fiction won't ever work. Give it up. We're stuck on this planet. <laughs>
1: Right. And uh, I had been planning a Generation Starship novel when I read Aurora (laughs) and said, fuck it. Uh,
3: (laughs) No, it can be done. It can be done. I've got one that actually tops the Robinson one. And I love Aurora. But if have you read River Solomon's An Unkindness of Ghosts?
1: No, I've not. Oh,
3: my goodness. Oh, she drops the mic on Stan. And it's shocking, actually. In a weird way, they were writing them at the same time. And it's bizarre, because in some Mm -hmm. ways, Everything he does, she does, but, or uh, they do, and it, but it goes in a very different direction. Um, and in there, uh, we, we get off Earth because we've ruined it, and we have a generation mm-hmm. ship. But the way we get generation ships to function effectively is to reinstitute chattel slavery with right. black and brown people enslaved and white people on top. And it's up to, like, uh, a young woman whose mother is a dead engineer and who has learned a terrible secret about the generation ship to try to lead her people somewhere else, and let me just say, it really doesn't really work out like it does in Stan's book, exactly. No, it, and it, it, it's
4: productive. But the, the interesting thing, there are two other interesting things about that novel. One is that the, the main character is is clearly neuroatypical. Yes. And, yep. and Very it, cool. so it's one of the, it, it, it deals with disability in an astonishing mm-hmm. way. The other thing that surprised me about it, and I have no idea if, if they have even read this, is that the plot almost follows beat by beat the plot of Heinlein's universe.
3: Right. Yeah. It's weird, isn't it? Business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Interesting. Uh, no, I haven't heard of that one. I'll definitely look check yeah. it out. Um, Alec, do you, I don't know if you read as much of the modern sci fi as you do because you had to do so much research in the old school.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is a question I always have trouble with because um, it just, there's so much of it. And I, you know, there are other people who are much more qualified than I am to talk about uh, contemporary science fiction. I mean, one reason I chose to write about uh, science fiction, you know, that was, you know, written. In some cases almost a century ago, uh, you know, there, there's less of it that has stood the test of time. And um, it's actually much clearer once 80 years has, has gone by, you know, which stories and authors have endured. And, um, you know, I, I frankly don't have a good answer to that question. I, I don't think that, um, you know, uh, professionally speaking, I kind of stick to claim in fiction that was uh, written between nineteen, uh, you know, thirty-seven and nineteen fifty, um, and beyond that, my, my knowledge of it kind of falls off. Um, and and you know, one of my personal goals is to, at some point, go back and try to figure out you know what's happening right now um, because obviously it's a very um, challenging time to be writing science fiction of any kind.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it, it it especially because science fiction as a genre in the last month. The, um, the the basis of world building has totally changed. like suddenly um, writing about uh, people sitting in a cafe eating has become um, genre in itself. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Well, so I, I just published uh, or, or, you know, so a, a collection of my stories just came out um, and each story in this collection has a date. All right. So they run from 1937 to I would say 2045. And um, I haven't looked at this anthology in a long time. And, you know, it kind of dropped um, before I was ready for it. And the first thing I thought is, did I write any stories that were set in 2020? Because right now, any stories set during that time is obsolete. And look, I look back and I checked and one of them is set in 2021. So I'm hoping that things kind of go back to normal enough by that point that, you know, what I wrote about it doesn't seem totally off the mark.
1: Yeah. uh, One of my writing mentors is uh, John Shirley. And um, I, (laughs) um, when, when, He and I had a discussion about his novel, Transmaniacon. A lot of it has to do with the Soviet Union, and it was written in the 70s, and he wanted to update it for a new edition, and I absolutely was like, no, (laughs) don't do it. (laughs) Leave it how it is. We want to see what you were thinking at the time. So I would would caution you to uh, feel okay about that.
2: (laughs) Okay, good, good.
1: If the 2021 uh, is just another alternate universe, right?
4: Yeah, yeah, we'll see. Uh, if you look at the dates in the Martian Chronicles, I mean, I think we've pretty much destroyed the earth by now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it starts in 1999, and by 2020, it's uh, I, the million-year picnic. Was pro- but Those dates were arbitrarily assigned when you put the mm. stories together in a book, too.
1: Yeah, well, one that we've had some really interesting discussions on, and this is brought up in one of the questions. Let me uh, share the screen here, um, and I will get one of our first questions, because that brings up something that um, I had wanted to talk about. Okay. So on the PKD fan group, we had a question about Mars in specific from David Nall. And he asked for PKD in the context of his fiction, characters and parts of society frequently live on Mars. However, few science fiction writers seem to care less about the specific technical survival challenges of such an experience is Mars used as a metaphoric way seems consistent through many of his novels. Uh, and did he acknowledge this in his contemporary work? And I brought up and what the reason why I thought this was interesting in relation to him is that I think it's interesting how science fiction has used Mars over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, just last year, uh, a friend of mine, uh, friend of the podcast, um, James Wright, did a novel called The Song My Enemies Sing, which is about science fictional Mars. It's not mm. about real Mars. It's about science fictional Mars. Mm. And what I thought was really interesting is that when Phil K. Dick wrote Martian Slip, he submitted it to Ace, and Don Wilhelm turned it down. He turned it down because it was set in 1994, and Phil K. Dick refused to change the date because Don mm. Wilhelm said there's no way we're going to have a Mars colony in 1994, and he was right. Mm. But Phil K. Dick didn't care. And what I realized when I was going back and looking at Martian time slip is the real Mars doesn't matter. The whole novel is set, in, is you know, time is slipping through the mind of an autistic character. And, and the, the science fictional Mars is what's more important than the actual Mars. And I wonder if we could talk about the distinction between science fictional Mars and how it's been used over the years and and the genre as a whole. Anybody want to take that first?
2: <laughs> well, one thing that comes to mind is, um, so I talked about Heinlein earlier. And, and Heinlein, I mean, there are probably others I'm, I'm forgetting, but he, he wrote two big novels with Mars as a backdrop. One is Red Planet, uh, you know, which was a juvenile that he wrote, I think, in the early 50s. And the other is Stranger in a Strange Land, which he wrote about 10 years later. And, uh, you know, these are two very different novels because, you know, Red Planet... Uh, you know, Heinlein's juveniles are, are really fun to read for me because I love sort of like the nuts and bolts science, which um, a lot of uh, science fiction for uh, grown-ups is discouraged from including. They say that, you, you know, you don't want to, like, bore the reader with all these technical, you know, details. But I, I love that stuff. Mm-hmm. And Heinlein's juveniles are very didactic. They're, they're actually meant to be educational. And so, they, you know, he does talk a lot about, you know, uh, rockets and, you know, the sort of the the, the plausible... Uh, technology of space travel in a way that I find really appealing. So Red Planet, you know, it's like a fairly grounded story. You know, it's very much like here's what it would kind of look like to have a Mars colony. Here's how it would work. You know, there are some fantastic elements, but for the most part, it's fairly grounded. Um, And then Stranger in a Strange Land, uh, which actually uses the same aliens, Uh, as red planet. You know, if you look closely at this, the way that these aliens are described, you know, they, they, are the same species, but in stranger in a strange land, they're barely mentioned. Uh, You know, Mars is sort of metaphorical. It becomes the, like a way of signifying that the protagonist is this other. Um, And, and I think it's very interesting to see how that, that happens. You know, Heinlein, you know, as he evolves as a writer, you know, as we say, you know, he kind of retreats from the real Mars um, that he had very carefully built up in a, in you know an earlier novel, and then sort of sees its value as a way of um, you know implying, or evoking certain qualities in the story that he doesn't have to spell out. You know, it's almost like a shorthand for him to say, you know, Michael, uh, you know, Valentine Michael Smith is not like the rest of us. You know, he is the man for Mars. Um, you know, the, the the original working title of that book was A Martian Named Smith. And, and, you know, that title alone, you don't have to, you know, go into any more detail. You know, that kind of gives the reader enough to, to, to work with, and then he can take the rest of the story from there.
4: And I think that the um, – the, uh, there, there was an attempt in the 40s and 50s, I think, to get away from a purely metaphorical Mars. And Heinlein did that, I think, about the same time that uh, – that, uh, Red Planet Mars came up would have been Arthur C. Clarke's Sands Mars, it was early fifties, maybe 1951 or 52, and that was Clarke's attempt to write a hard SF Martian novel. And I don't know if it was in response to all the Martian stories that Bradbury had been writing, for example, which were clearly just uh, you know made up. I mean, at the time Bradbury was writing his Martian stories, even Bradbury, who knew nothing about science, knew that Mars isn't anything like that. So there was an attempt to do a kind of hard SF Mars, and it's still going on today. It's going on with novels like *The Martian* and movies like *The Martian*. You know, these are the but, real problems. Yeah.
3: I so I did an actual sort of cultural history of Mars for a Vice News special. So and and you've seen that sort of swinging back and forth that Gary mm-hmm. notes, really like throughout the history since we've started using Mars in speculative fiction, like from Johann Kepler in the 1600s till about the 1800s, it was the moon, right? Because that was the mm-hmm. closest heavenly body we could see, so we sort of speculated well that's where we're going to find people that's where we'll sort of mirror ourselves but once we had the telescopes that showed us there was nothing there was shifted to mars Mm -hmm. and you know even from the beginning like you've got half the writers are trying to think in kind of a realistic way and half Mm -hmm. are really romantic about it right i mean burroughs is just romantic from the beginning right Right. i mean um and then Brackett follows that and bradbury follows that and for them right it's just that metaphoric space more than anything else um but you're right. There's, um, Judith Merrill does some pretty realistic Mars colonization stuff, too, in Daughters of Earth. So mm. by the 50s, um, we had the information that we knew it would be really challenging. Um, up to the 40s, we actually didn't know how challenging it would be to colonize Mars. There was really not a good sense. But by the 50s, everyone knew that data was out there for sure. Yeah. But I think that romantic tradition just had such clout at that point, and And that's, that's the story people wanted to tell. Plus, right, that way it's just a metaphor for ourselves, right? It's not really about Mars, right? It's about us.
4: I used to have this pet theory, which... Um, it's a pet theory, so I don't have to defend it. But I, th- I thought the moment at which American popular fiction shifted from the Western to science fiction was the moment that John Carter got translated from the Arizona desert to Mars. Right. He's surrounded by Indians, he's trapped in a cave, and his trip to Mars is just magic. There's no science fiction in that at all. Yeah. And then suddenly... What became a Western novel becomes still a Western novel, but it's on Mars with, uh, with Martians.
1: Yeah. And it helps that Mars looks kind of like Arizona a little bit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, Seth, you can jump in and ask questions, too, because I think you said you had a few questions prepared. Did you want to do that?
0: Yeah, I do have a few, and some of them were kind of going back to what you were originally talking about, about what science fiction is. And um, one of the things I always like to bring up with people is there's a famous sci-fi vortex, which was on the Sci-Fi Channel back in the day with Harlan Ellison and a bunch of other folks. And he famously objected to the term sci-fi. And his, his reason for objecting to it is that, in his words, it's intended to diminish and and kind of put sci-fi into its own little bubble. Right. Mm-hmm. And we see some of that today, even with the term science fiction, where you have a writer like Ian McEwen, McEwen who's writing a book about artificial intelligence and telling everyone it's not science fiction because it's not about mm-hmm. gravity boots and going 10 times the speed of light. And so yeah, I kind of wonder, you know, just what is the usefulness of the term science fiction and sci-fi and, you know how do, how do we describe what science fiction is without diminishing it?
2: Mm. That's a good question.
3: <laughs> do you guys know where the term sci-fi came from?
2: Did, Did Forrest Ackerman, uh, Ackerman, Ackerman yeah, that he coined and it.
3: The, yeah, and the point was not to diminish it, but to help popularize the genre, right? Because right. that's when hi-fi systems had become popular, right. mm-hmm. and so he figured if he could ladder off that with sci-fi, right, that it would mainstream right. it. But yeah, right, it has this interesting result. Um, it ends up trivializing it for some people. Well, I mean, what
4: what Harlan was objecting to, and I think it's a generational thing because when I talk to younger writers today, they don't mind sci-fi at all. Mm. But Harlan grew up in a generation where I think especially Time Magazine, the mainstream media picked up that term sci-fi to refer to uh, sub-literary adventure fiction. And mm. so uh, I, I can remember reading the term sci-fi in Time Magazine and being offended by it because, mm. you know, you don't call historical fiction hi-fi right
3: <laughs> we should though we, we should. should
4: We should Some, yeah
3: <laughs> all literary scholars are are, acad- are fans who get paid
4: yeah right exactly it's right.
3: true it's true mm-hmm.
1: well and i've always had a problem because sci-fi was like my one of my first loves as a little kid like i uh for me the first books that I ever like actually finished reading from beginning to end were the lucky star books, the, the, the juveniles mm-hmm. for, um, Isaac Asimov. And so I've always loved sci-fi. So when the idea that, that sci science fiction or sci-fi would be a pejorative, I couldn't get for my generation. I understand now intellectually, mm-hmm. I I've followed why the older writers have a problem with it. Um, and I'll use the term speculative fiction sometimes, but I, I don't have a problem with sci-fi. And I personally think it's something that we as writers should be taking back, you know, uh, mm. and flying the flag for, personally. But that's just my feeling on it. But,
4: yeah. I think to get back to, to Seth's question, that another thing that uh, Harlan was especially sensitive about was what he and other writers came to call the ghetto. And that is the idea that, you, you mentioned Ian McEwen, for example. Mm-hmm. And it was very evident, for example, to writers like Harlan Ellison that Bradbury had, to to use his term, escaped. Vonnegut uh, right. escaped. You know, if you, could, if you could establish your name as a non-science fiction writer, then you were permitted to write science fiction. But if you established your name as a science fiction writer, you'd have a hard time publishing mainstream fiction. As a matter of fact, Brunner is one of the examples of this because that last uh, – unpublished novel of his was his attempt at writing a great historical novel and nobody knew who he was.
3: Mm.
1: And we know Philip K. Dick wasn't able to get his mainstream novels published pretty much until after he died. Exactly. Confessions of a Crap Artist is one of his best. Right. Um, And just no one, you know, was interested because, and and I admit, I I, I like the, I like stuff like Three Stigmata, it's the the bad acid trip novel (laughs) too. I like that, but you know, um, it's too bad that so many authors had to to struggle to get taken seriously outside of the genre, and you know, you see it still. Like Stephen King was just on Fresh Air, like, and at one point he she said something about, well, you know, because you like to scare people, and he's like, well, I am a horror writer, but I write other stuff too, and it's like even Stephen King has to like at this point tell mm-hmm. people, but I write other stuff too. And uh, so I think that that's a, um, uh, you know, it's, it's funny because that, 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 that uh, ghetto never goes away um, to a certain degree.
4: But, it's changing. Uh, it's changing. I mean, people like uh, William Gibson have certainly changed. It. I mean, William Gibson is all at once. He's still a science fiction writer. He's never denied it. He's a mainstream bestseller writer. And he's a literary writer. He's got a foot in every camp. Uh, The problem is he's almost the only one, although I think Nora Jemison is coming close.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's authors that are not as huge names as them, like Brian Evanson, for example. I think Mm -hmm. he gets all kinds of literary respect, but he also gets respect in science fiction and horror.
4: Um,
3: The uh, British author Naomi Alderman is the same way, right? And she's mentored by Margaret Atwood, and mm -hmm. she goes back and forth very comfortably between mainstream and science fiction. Hmm.
1: Although it's Atwood who very famously argued is, with Thur- Thur- mm-hmm. Ursula Le Guin about that, yeah.
3: Which is what's so interesting that, that Alderman just ha- embraces it. She's like, I grew up on this. What do you mean it's mm-hmm. not science yeah. fiction? For heaven's sake, people.
4: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Brian, Brian Evanson is the same way because he, mm-hmm. yeah, he, he is right. uh, a godlike figure among MFA programs. Mm-hmm. They, they all want to write like him, but uh-huh. he really wanted to write an alien versus predator novel. Um, or what's the... The, the video game that he wrote, a bunch of novels. Dead Space. Dead
1: Space, yes. <laughs> and he co-wrote a book with Rob Zombie. So. Right, exactly. Oh, that's <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah, and, um, and Brian, being a, a two-timer on on our podcast, um, I, I really respected, um, he came on, just did our episode on Canical for Leibowitz. And, um, you know, it was really great to see somebody who, like you said, is a god among the MFA programs, I was like, I really hope he gets Canical for Leibowitz out there to uh, the people that look, that from this literary community who don't realize what an mm-hmm. absolute masterpiece that book is, and um, so that's one of the reasons why I was just really stoked he would do Canical for Leibowitz with us. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, you're right. I mean, he's a person that has a foot in all those worlds and, and we can do that.
3: And for the last few years, the best American short stories anthologies have off and on had genre editors mm-hmm. and people who have embraced genre and or who jump between genres. So, again, I think that there is a certain amount. McSweeney's, too, I think, right, really embraces yep. authors who, who move around those different spaces. So those spaces are there and there's some respect for them.
4: Mm-hmm. And there, there are literary writers who champion science fiction, even if they only write it occasionally, like Michael Michael Chabon, for example.
3: That's who I was thinking. Yeah, yeah.
4: Oh,
1: yeah, and writes for Star Trek now.
3: Exactly. <laughs> oh, does he?
4: He That's also cool. wrote. Uh, yeah, John he's a the Schoenberg. showrunner on Picard. Michael oh, Chabon. I did
3: I we were just getting ready to start that. I didn't. Well, now I'll enjoy that. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the idea that we have such a. A guy of such literary stature um, show running a series, a season of Star Trek is, is mind blowing too. But on the same token, we had Jerome Bixby and um, Theodore Sturgeon and mm-hmm. Norman Spinrad and Robert Block and Richard Matheson all wrote mm-hmm. episodes of the original Star Trek.
3: That's so right.
1: let's not get all hoity-toity because yep. we had a lot of really great. Um, Golden Age authors uh, uh, writing for Star Trek back in the day. And Harlan Ellison, of
3: course. And Harlan Ellison was on Babylon 5 back in the 1990s, too. So um, and continued that, right?
4: Well, going back earlier, you can go back to The Twilight Zone, which had a couple of Bradbury's and a lot of uh, Richard Matheson and Charles Beaumont.
1: Richard Matheson wrote the second most episodes of The Twilight Zone behind Sterling.
4: Yeah. And,
1: and Charles yeah. Beaumont is basically kept immortal by the, by the twilight zone and having written one of the best episodes in the Howling man. And uh, I mean, do we really think that the two or three short story collections of Charles Beaumont would still be alive without the influence of the twilight zone? Um, I think it has a huge part of why we're still um, reading Beaumont, which is great because his short stories are absolutely incredible. They're,
4: they're, they're amazing. I, I, I think of him in the same way I think of somebody like, Uh, John Collier, uh, who's ruled all short stories. Beaumont, I think, died uh, with a very rare form of early onset Alzheimer's. Uh, Died in his 40s. So he had a, a career that was cut short. And I think you're absolutely right. We're lucky to have those Twilight Zone episodes to keep interest in him alive. Yeah.
2: Well, I wanted to hop back is, quickly before we, we yeah. move on, um, yeah. you know, the question of why certain writers can write science fiction or fantasy or other kinds of like genre fiction and kind of like jump out of that category and, and be seen as literary writers. Um, after I answered the first question about, you know, who are my favorite science fiction writers? Um, I, I kind of realized, you know, my favorite uh, short story writer of all time is uh, Jorge Luis Borges, hmm. um, who, you know, if nothing else wrote, um two or three or four of the greatest science fiction stories, I think, if you want to call the Library of Babel a science fiction story or a fantasy story, and uh, T'Flaan Ukbar Orbis Tertius, which is my favorite short mm-hmm. story of all time. And it didn't even occur to me to, to mention him. I was like, okay, Heinlein, Ben Vogt, you know, I, I sort of like went there. My, my, my head went in a certain direction. Mm-hmm. And Borges, who to me looms larger than any of these people, you know, he is the single most important writer to me probably of any kind. Uh, I, was, I, I didn't even think of him. And, and I, I find it very interesting how like certain writers, you know, they're so slippery or they're so, um, you know, the way they're perceived, you know, they kind of fall out of that conversation when I think they actually, uh, I, th- I think the history of science fiction is enriched by including people like Borges or even Kafka, you know, in it that you, you wouldn't normally think mm-hmm. of. And, and mm-hmm. it's, it's in a big omission to say, you know, we're going to talk about these people who were categorized in a certain way and not others who, for whatever reason, you know, don't end up
4: uh, lumped together with those other writers. I think though, Alec, to some extent, the writers that you wrote about in the 40s were writers that mostly grew up on other science fiction writers. I think the generation right. of people, uh, and now you've got a generation of writers who, who, yeah, they would have read Borges, for example. As a matter of fact, Ted Chang's story "Exhalation" begins with exactly the rhythm of of the Library of Babel from Borges. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I think today's science fiction writers uh, have are much more widely and differently read than people who grew up reading only science fiction. One of my favorite quotations from Le Guin, it was in one of her essays or one of her lectures, uh, she began by saying, you can't write a good science fiction story if you've never read any science fiction. And you can't write a good science fiction story if you've never read anything but science fiction. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, it's totally true. Well, and um, Le Guin, I think really benefited from having two famous anthropologist parents, (laughs) you know, uh, the world building that she brought to it. It's funny because I didn't, I I read a bunch about her parents in this last week and I I knew that they were famous anthropologists, but I I didn't know to the level and what they actually were studying. Mm. And then when I read it, I was like, oh, always coming home makes so much more sense now.
4: (laughs) uh, There's an interesting biographical mystery, and Lisa, I'd like to know if you've come across anything about this, but one of the great uh, Last Man on Earth novels, one of the great pandemic novels is a novel called Earth Abide by George Mm -hmm. R. Smith. Um, And George R. Smith taught at Berkeley and was a friend of Ursula Le Guin's father. And she mentioned in a couple of interviews, she remembered George Stewart coming to her house. Um, Now, this would have probably been a little bit before he wrote... Earth Abides, which is about the, just the rebuilding of civilization after over, almost everybody dies, and it becomes a kind of tribal civilization. So one of the questions that uh, somebody asked was, is it possible that some of what is in Earth Abides came to inform Always Coming Home years later?
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Was she actually influenced by this guy who oh, we know that her father knew?
3: See, I almost feel like right that there's almost like the X factor. What influenced both of them? And it seems to me it's that anthropological context that they we were all <laughs> yeah. in, right? I mean, because like her parents were really involved with like um, you know Native Indigenous American uh, rights and preservation and stuff like mm-hmm. that, and really thinking that through in some pretty radical ways. So I'm sure they were sharing that with everyone. I mean, it's, 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 I don't, I've never heard anything about it, but it just feels to me like there's an X factor informing both. Yeah.
4: Mm-hmm
1: yeah it's, the connections are interesting because we you know we were talking before we started recording that these types of gatherings where we're all um where we're getting a chance to share ideas is 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 stimulating for us and stimulating to get our work going and how this quarantine has kind of kept people from seeing each other as much and how much of the writers groups and the clarions and the and the convention conversations have, have really spurred the, the genre forward in a way that other types of fiction don't have. Um, I, I mean, mystery writers get together and talk, I'm sure. Uh, romance writers do. So I'm sure there's some of that there too. But I think the conversation in science fiction, if you look at just the example that Alec was bringing up in World mm-hmm. of NoA to um, Phil K. Tech Solar Lottery, which is um, basically Solar Lottery is like, hey, I really like that first chunk of of World of Null A, but you went on this really crazy tangent. Why don't I do a whole book about that first chunk? <laughs> <laughs> and because uh, that's really, I mean, Phil K. Dick has admitted that he was riffing on World of Null A for Solar Lottery. And I think that the conversation between writers is so much a, a, a huge part of, I think why those of us who are obsessed with the history of the genre are so, you know, and that conversation, I'm sure Lisa, you have a unique uh, insight with having edited uh, the future as female, seeing that conversation moving forward. Right. The writers.
4: Yeah.
3: Um, but, um,
1: yeah. I'm just, i just, I, that's one of the reasons why I'm obsessed with teaching, reading, podcasting about the history of the genre, because I, I want to see that conversation move forward. Seth, do you have another question, or should I grab one off the internet?
4: I wanted to say one more thing about the conversation You, I sure. think you're talking about two kinds of conversations. One is uh, Phil Dick reading Van Vogt, for example. I don't think that came out of having lunch with Van Vogt. Um, there's this discussion that goes on, people responding to other people's fiction mm-hmm. and so forth. And then there's the kind of face-to-face thing that goes on at Clarion. Um, and Ale- Alec, did, did you go to Clarion? No, I have not. Okay. Uh, because everybody I know has gone to Clarion, and the statistics I've seen show that uh, as a writing workshop, they seem to have a much higher percentage of successfully published writers than any single MFA program in the country. Uh, and that's because you do get a week of uh, of talking to other budding writers. You get a week of um, uh, meeting some of the main editors and, and writers in the field. And this, this sort of thing continues at science fiction cons, at academic cons, at academic slash fan uh, writer cons like ICVA. Um so, so I think, you know, there, there are conversations that go on, but they go on at the face-to-face level, and they go on in that uh, I am going to write, oh, for example, uh, Starship <laughs> Troopers. Uh, you, you can build a little shelf of responses to Starship Troopers because everybody wanted to write a Starship Troopers novel. Either to, it's, Chip Delaney wrote a Starship Troopers novel, you know? Harry Harrison wrote, so that's a, that's another kind of conversation, I think. Yeah. Up
1: until last year, when uh, Cameron Hurley released the Light Brigade, which was exactly there fantastic.
4: Go. Uh, I will say that there is uh,
2: evidence that Dick and Van Vogt did meet. There is oh, a photograph, I believe, of the two of them hanging out uh, at a convention.
1: It's very there's very big proof because there's a uh, Dick has word for word said that he started writing novels because Van Vogt told him you're never going to make any money writing these short stories.
4: <laughs> there it go.
1: So I always hear <laughs> that as I always picture him with like a newspaper cap ha- hat on <laughs> saying like, you're never going to make money writing them short stories, kid. <laughs> uh, but so they did literally have that conversation. So Alec Ooh. is right. Um, but yes, so the, the conversation is both literal <laughs> and, um, and uh, well, I guess they're both literal, I guess um i'm losing my train of thought there so um seth yeah uh, do you want me to go to another another question for you or should i grab one off the internet
0: oh i had i had another one written down that was just sort of um almost like getting recommendations from the other people on the call who are more well read than i am about um topics that kind of touch on what we're going through today like quarantine and uh pandemic and and that kind of thing
1: who wants to start
2: You know, I thought about this recently. Uh, There aren't a lot of, you know, it's funny. I think the pandemic genre, for whatever reason, seems very British. There is not a lot of pandemic fiction per se in Golden Age science fiction. Mm. Um, And even like sort of apocalyptic end of the world fiction, you don't see a lot of it in the era that I know best. Um, I I was thinking about like what stories I think about, you know, what what the current situation reminds me of. And the one that I think about a lot is um, uh, It's a Good Life by Jerome Bixby, which mm-hmm. was uh, the basis for a very famous Twilight Zone episode mm-hmm. and a segment in the Twilight Zone movie. And it's about this, like, small town where everyone has to think happy thoughts uh, because there's a little boy who can read minds. Uh, the Simpsons did a, a famous parody of it, which um, <laughs> is the one I think of first. But uh, that, the story's about people trying to act normal. <laughs> it's about people trying to act normal in the face of this incredibly strange situation and whenever i go outside and i like you look at someone I'm like so how are you doing and, and they say eh, you know with that exchange to me it feels like we're we're signaling each other with our eyes we're saying you know nothing is right but we're going to make small talk and carry on with our day as if you know everything is, is going to be fine mm.
3: <laughs> yeah okay um, um-
4: Oh, go ahead, Lisa.
3: Oh, uh, I was going to say, so actually, I, I got interviewed about this, and I came up with a list of pandemic fiction. So there's there's more out there than you think, but it's actually not one of the biggest topics out there in mm-hmm. science fiction. But it's got a pretty good history. You know, Mary Shelley's the last man. Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of the Red Death, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, um, you can jump forward. Um, There's uh, Richard Matheson's I Am Legend. is technically a pandemic story, you guys. Mm-hmm. Michael Crichton's Andromeda Strain, one of the least objectionable things he's ever written. Um, (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Octavia Butler's Clay's Ark, another cool Uh pandemic story. Stephen King's The Stand. I have a student who just started reading it and is like, is this a good time to read The Stand? I'm like, well, that really depends. Um, (laughs) Right. Um, Stan Robinson, who we've been talking about a lot, The Years of Rice and Salt, begins Uh with the Black Plague wiping out Europe completely, right? Um, And then more recently, I was thinking about like Colson Whitehead's Zone One and Mm -hmm. uh, Larissa Lies The Tiger Flu*. So, oh, and um, Sam Miller's Blackfish City. There's a pandemic that's running mm-hmm. through the world as well. So, so we've actually seen a bit of pandemic fiction um, recently, which I think is kind of interesting because if you look around, like there's been a lot of medical literature about this for the mm-hmm. last couple of decades. Yeah. Um, but really quickly, if I can just say one really trippy story I've been thinking about lately <clears throat> is by Leslie F. Stone. She's one of the pioneering science fiction authors and one of the first mm-hmm. women science fiction writers. And she published a story in 1929 called A Letter of the 24th Century. And in that future, everyone does everything basically by internet. She calls it video radio phone, but mm-hmm. it's clearly an extrapolation. She's imagining that people will get their like, food delivered. They'll have education delivered by the internet. Politics will be carried out by this, mm-hmm. um, that everything will happen. And in part, the story implies it has to do with the fact that people no longer want to be out in uh, disease-ridden spaces. And I was so shocked by that. But then mm-hmm. I thought about that because she's writing that story 10 years after um, the 1918 uh, flu mm-hmm. pandemic. So I think that even then she's kind of like, and I'm wondering if there's not other authors around that time, I bet, who wrote plague stories. I'll well, bet you million go back, dollars. You go
4: back before that to
3: the,
4: the Machine Stops. You yes, know, yes, you know, yes. Time, yeah, we were talking is, about
3: that one too. And
4: one of the things I've been thinking is that maybe the thing, the kind of science fiction we're looking at now is not necessarily pandemic fiction. But fictions of isolation, fictions of paranoia, fictions even of alien invasion. I mean, the way our president, at least, has framed this is as a yellow peril story. Um, the kinds of movies that I've been thinking about are movies like uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the original mm-hmm. one. There's a scene in the movie where Kevin McCarthy and Dana Winter are looking out the window of people walking along the street. And, and McCarthy says, you don't know which ones are real, which ones are safe. And the movie ends, of course, with Kevin McCarthy shouting at the audience, you're next. Um, so or things like Heinlein's, the puppet masters, uh, are all things about, you don't know who's safe. You don't know who around you is safe to be around anymore. Hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The, there are two that I would bring up, um, Journal of the Plague Years by Norman Spinrad, which mm-hmm. is mostly about HIV. Um, and it's, it's definitely more about HIV and AIDS. Um, and it was written during that time. We covered it on the podcast. Um, uh, when we interviewed Spinrad, he was very excited that we even remembered that the book existed because it's one of the ones that's been kind of lost. And um but that one I, I would definitely recommend. But the number one, like I said earlier, I couldn't bring myself to read it, was the is the Sheep Look Up by John Bruner. Um even though it's an environmental apocalypse novel, it's mostly about pollution, there there's a part where you see there's very much a part that's about the economy crashing and the healthcare system crashing. Uh, very much like what what we're kind of seeing happen in slow motion right now. And there's even a a, a part where uh, a newscaster gets on the air and basically says, we're going to have to sacrifice probably about 2 billion people <laughs> if we want to live through this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's the reaction to it. And when the the governor of Texas was, was I think it was the former governor of Texas, wasn't it, that was like, basically like, Hey, I think we could sacrifice for the economy. Right. <laughs> yeah. And th- that just like when I was watching that, I just, I looked out, I cause it's on my bookshelf right underneath my TV, um, my Bruner section. And I saw the sheep look up and I was like, Oh my God, I remember that scene from the sheep look up. And, um, and I'll just say this as a, as a brunette um, with Brunner um, that, that, Nobody predicts the future better than Bruder in a lot mm. of ways. Mm. Um, the stand, stand on Zanzibar predicted school shootings in 1969 wow. and mass shootings in a, in, in a really creepy and insane way. Mm. Um, and that's always the example I use of when science fiction actually does predict the future. Um, and I know, that, I can't remember who it was that said, our job is not to predict the future, but, um, and I know it's not. But it is interesting when it does happen. But I would say, I definitely say the sheep look up for, for this, even though it's an environmental model. Yeah.
0: So if I can throw one, one title in in this discussion, um, it's not really pandemic-related so much as that's a component to the kind of post-apocalypse. It's more about isolation and loneliness, and it's The Day of the Triffids by John Wyndham. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a lovely passage in it where, where the main character is... He's out driving on these roads that are completely abandoned. And, you know, there's small country roads in England that usually he would see cars on. And there's just this meditation on what, it, what he used to think loneliness mm-hmm. was and what it actually is. And that just it reminds me of all the, uh, all the people on Facebook that I know that are extroverts that are really suffering right now um, because they can't <laughs> be around their people. And I'm in a family of three introverts. So we're like, no, we're good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right. I'm going to pull one off the internet. Uh, let me do a little screen share here so you guys can see it. Um, let's see. All right. Russell Stone, who's a listener of the Dickheads podcast, said, Stories about sentience and personhood of androids, even holograms, have, made quite a popu- have been made quite popular for many years. Recent TV shows such as Humans, Almost Human, Westworld, and Picard have explored this topic in interesting ways can we learn from classic science fiction literature on this topic and where it's going in the future? Any discussion on the topic of androids is fast is fascinating to me. All right. So he wants to talk about androids Hmm. and how it comes in classic work. Let's start with Alec. Um, Do you have any favorites of Android and robot novels?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, so my favorite robot story is actually not by Asimov. Um, It's uh, With Folded Hands by Jack Williamson, which uh, is kind of the ultimate robot uh, novel and the one I think about the most these days. Uh, Basically, you know, um, it it, it asks, you know, so the first uh, of Asimov's three laws of robotics is a robot shall not, um, can can someone help me out? A robot. Harm a human being. Harm a human being or through inaction, allow a human being to come to harm, all right? And Williamson says, what is the logical extension of this rule or this law? And the answer is, uh, essentially, the robots take over and decide to prevent the human race as a whole from doing harm to itself. And it does this by essentially lobotomizing people, um, reprogramming them to avoid risk. And um, to me, that says, you know, it, it kind of goes where Asimov does not. Um, and, and, you know, it was published, I think, in, like, 1950, thereabouts. Yeah. And, and to me, you know, that's one of a handful of stories that I think um, are, are very prescient and very relevant when it comes to how we interact with technology today.
4: And it became half of the novel, The Humanoids, mm-hmm. with the, together with its sequel and Searching Mind, I think was the title of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess the thing to uh, point out, since we're talking about androids, the original androids, we're now celebrating the centennial of Karl uh, Chapek's RUR, mm-hmm. uh, which was, in fact, not about mechanical robots, but about organic robots, and about the, uh, I mean, to some extent, I actually saw the play performed once, and it was, unfortunately, very talky and not very interesting, but the basic plot is, he laid the groundwork for the, the, the robot revolution, it was there in that play, the robots taking over for the humans, uh, the humans, in effect, becoming marginalized, it's, it ends up being a very apocalyptic play. Mm-hmm. And, well, uh,
3: only if you're a human.
4: Well, if you're a human,
3: yeah. If you're a robot, it's pretty good by the end. I mean, yeah, I guess that's it works true. works out and well for them. <laughs> well, it doesn't work out well for him. But oh, that's true. It, he's, not go- he's not getting reproduced, yeah. you know? <laughs> he's it's not also- the one pregnant and in love at the end. Let's just say that, right? <laughs> yeah. so, um,
4: and it's also, of course, yeah. the play that gave us the word robot. From
3: yes. The Czech yeah. word robot. All those early robots are biological robots, mostly, um, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, even in Metropolis, it's it's not exactly mechanical. Like, you've got the technological apparatus around her, but it's kind of animating this beautiful statue, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And in A Wife Manufactured to Order, which is by Alice Fuller from 1890s, um, she imagines wax robots, essentially. um, Mm -hmm. And they're sort of engraved on, like records. Um, And so... It's a, have you ever read this story? Have any of you read that story? It's so good. It's so funny. It's about a guy. It's, um, he has a fight with his girlfriend. She's a feminist, and he just doesn't want to argue politics anymore. And then he learns there's someone in town who's making wax wives, um, you know, robot wives. So he goes to buy one, but he's broke, so he can only get the basic model, and it can only say four things. It's like, you're awesome. I love you so much. You're so hot, and everything will be great. And then there's like an economic crash and he loses everything. And all she can tell him is how awesome he is. And he realizes he was much better off with the feminist and it's no good to have a perfect <laughs> wife and goes back on bended knee and the feminist solves the problem for everyone in a dignified way for, for the, for everyone, including and the what year was that? 1895, I think 1898. Oh. It's a very early story. Wow. It's great. I love it. That's one of my favorites. That's a better but ending yeah.
0: than the Stepford
4: Wives.
3: So much better. Well, it's yeah. funny. When a woman writes the story, sometimes you get a hopeful ending.
4: Yeah. I'd, I'd love to get your take on no woman born.
3: I love that story. Oh, it yeah.
4: Such That's a, great a
3: really good story. One. Yeah.
4: Um, hey, what can I say? Well, I, mean, I think that story, more than most more. actually raised oh, okay. the question of what is human? What is, yeah. it? where hmm. do you become, at what point are you a human? Or yeah. What point right. do you cease to become human?
3: Well, and what's great, Moore, too, is it really. more,
4: so uh, Moore. Yeah.
3: Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She's
4: great. She's she, one of my favorite
2: favorite writers
3: yeah and it's not just about what it is to be human but how is being human sexed and gendered right because the whole problem is that she doesn't have any sex anymore right except that she flirts and she lights cigarettes and they all respond to it and that's that's what freaks the her creator out because he's like i've created a monster without sex and then he realizes she's still really hot and he's kind (laughs) of attracted to her and he's out the window but then she doesn't let that happen because she's too cool She's a knight in shining armor, literally. So what I think, that's a great story. Um, I think women write really cool robot stories, maybe because we've so often been the targets of scientific manipulation. And um, so have that sympathy for other created, you know, manipulated beings. But um, another great story is by Sherry Ann Lewitt from 2000. It's called A Real Girl. And it's about an AI that grows itself a body because it wants to be a lesbian. Hmm. Well, it already knows it's a lesbian, but it wants to experience earthly lesbian delights. It's been having sex in virtual, in the virtual world, and it's like, nah, I want a body. And it's great. It works at a university, and it has to bully its college per- uh, students into growing the body for it. It's the most evil college professor ever. It's the best. And it doesn't die, so it can just wait. Like, if one administration tells her no, she just waits till the next one comes. It takes her 200 years, but she gets a body. So that's great. I like that story.
1: Yeah. Well, it's really, I think what Russell's getting at, and I think it's true, is that we're seeing um, a wave in, in the most popular form of science fiction, which right now is television, of of the artificial intelligence, the evil artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. whether it's Star Trek Discovery or Picard, um, mm-hmm. Westworld, human, humans, almost human, all that. We're seeing a lot of the the go-to for these big shows is the evil artificial intelligence. So I, yeah. I do think that w- we're seeing it in a, in, in a new way. Uh, I would say one of my favorite examples of robot fiction um, was uh, Rudy Rucker's four books, the, um, the software um, series. Yeah. Um, I software to me is still like one of the most incredible um, examples of, of uh, robot fiction. I, I, I I've read software twice. I could read it again today. Mm. Um, It's really good. And uh, that's one. And then uh, The Skinner by uh, Neil Asher is a recent one that I really, really like. That novel can be compared in many ways to Dune or Master and Commander, but at the heart of it is the story of a man who is on a mission for hundreds of years to get revenge, who becomes progressively more and more robotic in order to keep his mission of vengeance alive and uh it's a really interesting exploration of what it means to be artificial and a great 21st century science fiction novel from a guy who mostly is thought as a pew pew writer and neil asher but i really like the skinner Mm. that's one i would bring up but uh Anybody have any other classics of the, of the robot thing, or we'll move on to their... Uh... Yeah, but
4: I can put in a plug for my colleague on the podcast, because Jonathan Stroud had an anthology out just about a month ago called Robots and Revolution, Made to Order, Robots and Revolution. And it's a bunch of very contemporary writers thinking about uh, robot stories. Uh, and I think all of these themes that we've talked about show up somewhere in that anthology, so I'd recommend it to people. Mm.
0: One that I throw out is—it's more AI than um, Android—is um, Colossus by D.F. Jones, um, which is one that I read years ago and I really loved. <laughs> that is um, the most the,
3: evil book. <laughs> yes, yes.
0: The thing that I like about it, though, is that the main character um, opines that he thinks that scientists should all make sure that they read Frankenstein and understand—you know—the the moral responsibility of creating something, and you know are you going to just create this thing because you can or are you going to create it with a mind to making sure that once it's created it's happy um and uh yeah it's it's one of the things that makes me think that the reason that science fiction is so useful is that you know we're in a time where computing power is becoming so impressive that artificial intelligence is something that we really see emerging on the horizon and we need people thinking about it from a variety of perspectives and that's where science fiction comes
4: in and i think you're right i think that novel and the and even the film from it the forban project Mm -hmm. uh was a very early iteration of what people later came to think of as the singularity when you put together two supercomputers and they do something beyond what anything anyone thought they could do right Uh, and that that of course leads eventually to the whole uh skynet thing and all the terminator series and so forth and so on and and it some of it dates back to Carl Ellison's uh, stories, Demon with a Glass Hand and the Soldier. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and it's unbelievable that we talked about robots and androids this long, and I didn't bring up, do androids dream of electric sheep? All of course. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or Blade Runner. But I do think it's important that uh, one of the reasons I didn't bring it up is because we haven't covered it yet on the podcast, so I'm kind of mm-hmm. waiting to have all my thoughts out on that. But I would say <laughs> that it is important to think that Dick didn't, did do biological Mm. replicants and Mm. um, that he, I mean, he had what he would call in in, in the books, Robance all the time. And he often had robots doing um, things like selling cigarettes on the street or, or ads. Um, One of my favorites is in uh, penultimate truth. They had a robot that basically went around um, like uh, figuring out what, things you, um, needed or wanted. And then they made targeted ads that basically like, so if you, for example, if, if it figured out that you wanted to eat cocoa puffs, you would basically have this vision of cocoa puffs flying <laughs> at you. And, and, um, it's an underrated part of, uh, of, uh, the penultimate truth <laughs> in my opinion, of uh, one of, um, one of his more pulpy books but he used to do things like that all the time with with artificial intelligence, things like that in there. So, uh, Seth, do you have uh, anything else? We're getting on over an hour now.
0: No, I think that that exhausts my questions.
1: (laughs) Okay. Um, So, yeah, I'll start to... um, uh, One of the things that I wanted to kind of... When I had everybody here is that... um, you know, between the work that Lisa's doing with her anthologies, and I think, um, and what Alec did, and writing about astounding what what Seth and I are doing with the podcast, and, and certainly Gary's doing that with his too, and all of his writing and criticism, is we're all trying to make sure that the um, the brilliant works of science fiction of the past are not lost. Um, uh, Anti impedious PDS Press is is about to re-release. Barry Maltzberg's revelations. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a book, for example, that could very easily be lost, Mm -hmm. um, to time. C L Moore was a writer we were talking about. I'm from Indiana. I didn't even know that there was a writer named C L Moore from Indiana until I read Lisa's book. Now I'm all about C Mm -hmm. C. L Moore.
3: (laughs) As you should be.
1: Right. (laughs) And, And this mission that we have of trying to teach the history of the genre, I think, is is why we're all here and why we're all doing this, but we want to see the genre move forward too, and we want um, we want that the younger writers to discover these older works and have that conversation with them. So, in that train of mind, um, what what ways do you what are the ways that you most want to see the younger generation of writers? discover science fiction of the past. Um, Gary, would you like to start us off? And, and that That's, looks like a very cute cat you have there. Uh, the
4: cat is, <laughs> is, is not being friendly. The cat is trying to get fed. Uh, <laughs> and, and now maybe he sees his mommy who's going to feed him. My, I, I, have a, I have a mixed feelings about this. Obviously, I think that uh, classic science fiction has got a lot to offer to a lot of younger writers. On the other hand... Um, what classic science fiction is changes, I think, from generation to generation. When I talk to a lot of younger writers, I'm sometimes surprised at how few of them are familiar with Asimov and Heinlein and Clark and that generation. There was, there was a time in which you weren't allowed to write science fiction unless you knew those writers. And now you've got a generation of people who, you know, whose early experiences might have been William Gibson or might have been Le Guin and this sort of thing. Um, but when you see somebody, and I mentioned, I mentioned Lavi Tiddar, uh, because he has a character in one of his Central Station stories named Chamblot, It's right out of C.L. Smith, and he knows he's doing it. He's got a new novel about King Arthur, and don't ask me to explain how this is happening, but part of it is a homage to the Strugatsky's Roadside Picnic in Arthurian England. Don't, don't So, so I, I think appreciating earlier science fiction is great, but I don't think science fiction should have an infancy exam. I don't think there are certain writers you tell younger writers or younger readers. They have to, I think they have to discover it on, on their own. And I think people do that. I think one of the reasons, for example, uh, that Cordwainer Smith is still alive or that Joanna Russ is still being read is because people find those authors on their own and are blown away by it. But I don't feel like I have the right to tell these people who they have to read.
1: Sure. Yeah. I understand that. I mean, I, I of course, doing a Phil K Dick podcast. I want to tell people like, "Hey, you should read Phil K Dick. You should read John Brunner. You should read Le Guin." But at the same time, all I'm going to do is explain to them why these things work for me, and hope mm-hmm. that they find it. Um, Lisa, uh, mm-hmm. uh, on that topic, what 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 do you want to see happen in this conversation between the past with the okay. current writers? So
3: I, I'm I'm of two minds on this. So one part of me, the first part of me, when you said. How how would I like to see people uh, interact with this material, have it delivered to them? I thought maybe in a shot directly to the brain would be the best, especially in terms of the recovery of women's science fiction, because I've been working on this for almost 20 years now. People before me worked on it for decades before this. And yet, even now, as I'm editing a handbook on gender and science fiction, I'm getting submissions that are still telling the old story about how there were no women in science fiction until Ursula Le Guin invented feminism. (laughs) And, you know, and and there are a few problems with just that whole claim in a number of ways. And it's, so that's tricky. So I wish that we could get the nuance of history into people's heads sometimes. Um, for the puppies, for instance, I would like to shoot them with just the history of science fiction in general, right? All the things (laughs) they claim that science fiction is ruined is all the things it's done since the beginning. It'd be nice if they knew their history. Um, Uh, So in some ways, I feel that way, you know, when I'm having my benevolent dictator moments, or maybe not even benevolent moments, my dictator moments. At other moments, though, as someone who uh, does work especially on those voices that have been marginalized within science fiction, as we understand it, I worry about forcing anyone's canon down anyone's throat because, mm-hmm. as Gary said, this changes over time and it just does it, changes over space as well. Because if you are uh, Tade Thompson and you grew up in Nigeria, mm-hmm. or right, like, or uh, Nick Wood growing up in South America, or, or any of these Chinelo Onawalu growing up in Nigeria, like, your background and your canon is going to be very different than mine, mm-hmm. and I don't think they have to know mine to do a kick ass job at their jobs. I mean, I think that's been amply proven by Mm -hmm. the modern science fiction community. So I think there's a a spatial dimension to this as well as a temporal. And maybe so what I want is I want to know more of everyone's histories, but that's I'm a history dork. So there you go. Mm -hmm. Uh, Alec?
2: Um, I mean, one thing that I try to get at is the need to separate our understanding of the past, you know, what's been done before in science fiction with the idea of being a fan of science fiction. Um, because one thing I discovered when I was doing research for my book on, on Campbell and these other writers is that you know, most science fiction history is written by fans all right? and it means that um, for one thing they tend to be less critical than you might want uh, in terms of evaluating these writers and their legacies and um, it also means that certain writers get selected to um, you know, kind of be, be part of that story of science fiction because there are still people who are reading their work and enjoying their work and who admire their work but, you know, you don't have to like someone for them to be important. Um, and Campbell is a great example. Uh, you know, I mean, I spent two plus years thinking about Campbell and writing this book about Campbell. You know, and it's the kind of book that in the past, you know, would have been produced by someone who thought Campbell was great. And I think he's very important. I think he's, he's a central figure in understanding what science fiction is. Um, but I'm also very critical of him. Um, I think that his strengths... Are, are undeniable, but I think that you can also um, point to him when it comes to a lot of the limitations of what science fiction became and, and, and still is. And you know, uh, I think my book played a you know some role in in the renaming of the John W. Campbell uh, Award for Best New Writer. And, and I think that's kind of you know th- that that's and I'm I'm, I'm fine with that. I, I think that was probably the right choice. And I think that you can't talk about Campbell in an honest way without talking about you know the the things that led that award to be renamed. And I so, think you should
1: be really proud of that, Alec. Actually, well, thank you. I, I, I think, yeah, we all appreciate um, what you did for the genre and that, because a lot of the way the history was taught before was through almost through the lens of Damon Knight, and it through honestly in the past.
2: Right, well, and and all these works are valuable, you know, and, and and I love I love you know sort of fan centric stories and fan centric history, but um, you know, I think it's important for people to go back and say, you know. Uh, you, you don't have to be right or a good person to be important. And, and I think understanding, you know, if, if you're, you want to push back against, uh, you know, some of the writers and editors who we've been talking about, that's great, you know, and that's, that's a legitimate way to interact with the history of science fiction and to kind of,
4: uh, you know, play your part in it. Yeah, I think we have to acknowledge those of us who are interested in, I guess, teaching at least, that uh, what Alex says is exactly right. For the first 50 years or so, what passed for scholarship in the field was fan work was either work done by fans or work done by uh, professional writers like Damon Knight or, or all just or James Blish. And, uh, well, Lisa, the anthologies you're doing, you know, in an earlier generation were anthologies by Vonda McIntyre and Pam Sargent. Pam They're Sargent. Right.
3: Yep. Absolutely.
4: Yeah. Well, and, and I think,
1: um, we're getting such a better picture these days of, of the genre. And I think, um, you know, some of the older generation, I think is starting to really appreciate that, um, that, that we're, that we're paying attention and that we're helping to, to, to teach, um, what, what they did. Uh, Mm. Seth, now you, you do this through the lens of covering the Hugo books. You started this because you, you know, and I know because I did the same thing with covering the sixties, my podcast with the Hugos, um, you know, you didn't come. You didn't. You started this because you wanted to read the Hugo books, not necessarily to teach people about it. But what right. has been the experience of seeing how reading those books together with one guest at a time ha- has um, has affected how the community views those books?
0: Yeah, I mean you know part of the reason that i set up the podcast to not go through in order is that i wanted to kind of get a sense of the conversation that goes on within science fiction through all the generations and so i'm not just you know covering everything from the 50s and then into the 60s and on up to modern times and so i'll often have a book from the 50s back to back with one from the 2010s and so i get to see kind of that that history and how it it all informs each other and so when we're talking about would we want writers to, to know the golden age science fiction? Well, sure. I like the idea that, you know, having a sense of that history is going to be good. Um, But I have very little patience in just in life in general for uh, kind of gatekeeping and saying, Oh, it it needs to be done this way. And if you don't understand this, then you can't do it. Um, You see that a lot in sports where, you know, the new generation comes up and they're exciting and the old guard throws baseballs at them because they're having fun, you know, And you can see that kind of thing happen in science fiction as well. And so I guess as long as it's not prescriptive, as long as you're saying, hey, go read this. This is where the genre came from. This is what it was doing. You know, this is what it was saying during the Cold War. That's not necessarily going to inform exactly what we're going to talk about today because we have different concerns. And, um, yeah, so if it's just kind of there is – look at this and springboard off of it and react to it um sometimes you're going to react to it in very negative ways right you're going to look at it and and you're going to say hey in all these books that won up and up through a a certain point there's not a good female character anywhere right and and so now you have some reaction against that which is definitely a good thing
1: well Um, then the conversation sometimes uh happens organically in the sense of we agreed to do our Waystation episode together started reading it, and then Netflix announced two days later that right. Matt Reeves was working on an adaptation of Waystation. Yeah, which was totally left field because who mm-hmm. adapts Clifford Samac
0: Right. <laughs> yeah.
1: For film, I mean, great. Yeah, I love Clifford Simak. I want to see Clifford Samak movies happen, but mm-hmm. that was just bizarro, th- the timing, and yeah. and it really impacted the way our conversation happened. Uh, you know, yes. Mm-hmm. So, um, which was really fun, but it was all right. So let's close. I'm sorry. Did I, are you still going Seth? Or nope, good? I'm good. Okay. Let's uh, go around and talk about where people can find us and what we're working on in the future, a little bit more details of how people can get involved with what we're doing. Um, Gary, you want to start?
4: I'm still doing the coot street podcast. We've been doing little 10 minute podcasts with various people who've come out uh, once a day, actually. I'm still working uh, kind of as a consultant with the Library of America. There are some forthcoming volumes that will be featuring Octavia Butler and later uh, Ray Bradbury. Uh, and um, still working with the um, University of Illinois Press series of monographs. By the way, the very first monograph in the series uh, from U of I Press was about John Brunner.
1: Yeah, I, I'm yeah. looking forward to to reading that. And um, I'm really excited about a uh, friend of the podcast, E. Harlan Wilson's uh, J.G. Yep. Ballard book. Um, and I want to put a, a word in that I think he should write the Philip K. Dick book, if you have any say on that, Gary. <laughs> he was just on our Lies Inc. episode, and he was great. Um, and,
4: uh, yeah, that's, that's did, great. Dude. Anything did, else? The, the, the biggest problem in terms of getting people to write, and it's supposed, supposedly academics, but not all academics, is when you tell somebody, and Lisa and I have had this conversation, too, somebody finds out that they're going to write a 70,000 word book, but then they have to read everything by that author. You can't just write a couple of articles. We've had two or three people saying, I'd like to write a book on Neil Stevenson. And then you say... You're talking about reading 15,000 pages of fiction to write this 70,000 words. <laughs> and we'll suddenly lose interest. Yeah. That's why. Right. Uh, yeah, well, I will say uh, uh, David
1: Wilson has read every PKD book already and would be probably prepared okay. to read it again. So he would be good for it. I just want to put that out there. Um, and uh, speaking on behalf of uh, Dickhead Nation there, um, but uh, Lisa, what's? Uh, oh wait, Gary, where where can they where can people find you on the Twitters and all that?
4: No, I'm on Twitter and uh, and Facebook as Gary K Wolf. It's easy enough. Okay, W O L F W O L F. There's another Gary K Wolf, W O L F, who wrote Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and I get asked to sign his books all the time. Um, <laughs> and I'm not him. And if you, as somebody actually. Made a cross-country journey to a readercon once to have me sign this book, and I—I I should have signed it. I did I don't know.
1: Lisa, where can people find you? <laughs> what, what what's uh, next in the pipeline?
3: All right, so um, you can find me obviously at Georgia Tech. So my name is not repeated by anyone else's name. So if you can just get this last name spelled correctly, I'm pretty easy to find. Um, you can just Google for me at Lisa Yazik at Georgia Tech. If you can't remember that, Google Science Fiction at Georgia Tech, and I will still be the first person to come up. I guarantee that. So what we're working on now, besides trying to figure out how we're going to do everything online for the next four or five months, is um, we're actually um, we're working on the Sci-Fi Lab. I have a lab where we run a podcast, a Twitch stream, and we're launching our original radio drama hour, actually, this Monday. So we're working on getting that online and getting the good news out about all of that. Um, And that's really fun. In my own work, I'm doing my recovery work right now on Afrofuturism. I have a book on the history of Afrofuturism coming out from Ohio State Press in August. And then I have another special project on the future of Afrofuturism, what is beyond Afrofuturism. And that's coming out, I don't know when, sometime in the next month or two. It's a special issue of a journal. Um, Other than that, I'm working on uh, an introduction to The Time Machine. It's going to be a very cool edition of The Time Machine. It's also going to have the chronic Argonauts in it, which is the first short story that HG Wells ever wrote. And it's a story that's the basis for the time machine. And it's very rare that those two stories are published together. So we're excited to show people how his thinking about scientists and time machines changed over 10 years. Hmm. And that's it. If you want to find out anything else, look me up on Amazon. I've got a nice little author page there. It's true. And on the social medias always. (laughs) Alec
2: um yeah so again my name is unique alec neville if you can spell it correctly i'm online you can find me on twitter and uh, on my blog um obviously if you'd care to buy a copy of my book astounding i'd be very pleased um but i, I do want to mention you know so i was a fiction writer first I, I wrote several novels and um i i wrote astounding this non-fiction book because i had been writing for analog science fiction in fact you know for for some time um And um, I'm very pleased to say that, um, you know, my first anthology came out. Oops, there we go. Uh, So, syndromes. it's an audio uh, original anthology read by Catherine Ho and Jonathan Todd Ross that collects uh, 13 stories that I published in Analog uh, over the past 15, 16 years. Um, They've all been revised and um, rewritten to form one timeline. You know, it unfolds in chronological order um, with, you know, different connections between these stories. And and I mentioned it, number one, because I love to, you know, see people read it or listen to it. But, you know, I sometimes asked, you know, why did you write about Campbell? Why did you write about Astounding, you know, these stories that are pretty old? And the reason is that, you know, when I was 20-something years old and wanted to submit, you know, stories someplace for the first time, I picked Analog. And Analog, you know, has been kind of out of the mainstream for a while. It doesn't, always win lots of Hugo awards. Um, But there are a lot of reasons why, to me, that was my home. That was the magazine that I always thought, um, you know, spoke to me and and where I belonged. And if you read these 13 stories, um, you can understand why. Seth?
0: Yeah, you can find me uh, at Hugo's Podcast. That's the Twitter handle for the Hugo's There podcast. Uh, That's where I do most of my tweeting. I do have a personal account, but I never use it. Um, You can also find the Hugo's There podcast, and any podcast catcher, um, Take Me to Your Reader is my other podcast that I do with my friends James and Colin. And uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from you.
1: All right, and um, I personally right now working on, um, well, I've got I'm selling Goddamn Killing Machines, which is my most recent novel, but I'm also working on trying to find uh, an agent for a novel that I wrote with our Dickheads co-host, Anthony Trevino, called Nightmare City, which is... We describe it as The Wire meets X-Files if Clive Barker and Philip K. Dick were in the writing room. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so we're currently in the process of uh, trying to home that with an agent, and I'm writing a um, what is going to be probably my most epic and <laughs> longest um, science fiction novel, thanks to the coronavirus, keeping me at home a lot. <laughs> um and for whatever reason, I'm writing my butt off in this. Um, <laughs> it's helping me uh, out immensely in that way. But for the Dickheads podcast, we'll be back soon. We just recorded our Lies Inc. episode, which will be going up soon after this. That's Lies Inc. from the Unteleported Man uh, with D. Harlan Wilson, um, the editor, academic, and publisher who uh, really wanted to be with us today and maybe next time. But um, yeah, that episode is really great. I'm really excited about it. So, um, and if you can find us at Dickheads Pod on Twitter, um, I'm at uh, D Agrinoff Author A G R A N O F F Author on Twitter. And thanks for joining us, everybody. Um, this was really ex- was really fun and exciting to have uh, one of the coolest possible panels. Ever with these people, <laughs> um, and I hope someday we can do it again at WorldCon or somewhere fun like that. Uh, I hope so. I hope we see some of you in person that's... again. Last call. <laughs> All right. So as we always say on the Dickheads podcast, uh, keep it paranoid and uh, stay paranoid, and we'll uh, we'll see you in the Philip K. Dick verse next. <laughs>